This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I just knew how to talk to guitar players. And that was always my first love. I wanted to be a guitar player. I was reading issues of guitar player before I started writing for them. And I loved reading stories about guitar players. So I knew that I was never going to be that kind of that panoramic rock music journalist. But as a rock guitar writer, that I could do. I, I thought I had a pretty unique place in as much as I did play guitar. I was never a great guitar player. I was a good guitar player. But I knew how to talk to these guys. And maybe more importantly, I knew how to listen. And yeah, when I think about these bands that I loved, I loved the bands themselves, but I, I loved the guitar players more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train, though I'm sure he will come up. Instead, we are talking about friendship. We are talking about writing, and we are talking Eddie Van Halen. Steve Rosen is my guest. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Yeah, I, I am so thrilled to talk to you. You were nice enough to send me the book, Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen. Yep. And I got to tell you, this is a wonderful book. Thank you, man. And and, and we're going to talk a little bit generic, some just background and then we're going to get to the book and then this book hit me in a personal way and I'll explain why when we get to it but in the meantime tell us a little about yourself born in St. Louis uh, my parents moved out to uh, California when I was six grew up in Culver City which was uh, a very well-kept secret uh, up until about 10, 15 years ago, nobody knew where Culver City was. And all of a sudden, Culver City was like the place to be. Sony Studios were out there. A bunch of restaurants, an amazing little city to grow up in. Went to school at Culver City High School. Wrote for my high school newspaper when I was a senior. I had a, a little column where I'd go out and review shows and uh, reviewed records. Leaving high school, I went to UCLA for a year, which was a, a total disaster. I hated every minute of it. I thought I'd get my writing chops together, but that never happened. I left UCLA. I went to Europe uh, with a buddy of mine, and we hitchhiked around. And I met some people and came back to California, moved to the Hollywood Hills, and just started sending out stories to all kinds of magazines. Guitar Player and Cream and Circus and uh, Rolling Stone and being rejected by everybody and just kept pursuing it. And, and one by one, I, I ended up writing for all those magazines and it grew from there. So during the seventies, I did a lot of writing for Guitar Player Magazine. In the eighties, I was writing for Guitar World. I was writing for a lot of foreign magazines, a lot of European magazines in France, in Germany, in Italy, Spain, writing for Japanese magazines. 
And yeah, man, it, it just grew. I'd always been a guitar player. I played guitar since I was pretty young. And the music journalism was just a way to connect my love of music and guitar players with writing. And yeah, that in a nutshell is basically it. Along the way, I wrote some books. My first book was a, a biography that came out in Japan about Jeff Beck, his first biography. wrote a book on Sabbath. I wrote a book on Free and Bad Company, one on Prince, on Springsteen. Yeah, and then my most recent book is a book I began that actually came out about two years ago, the Van Halen book, which is, but that in a nutshell was what I did. It just, it was a freelance thing and you write for one magazine and that becomes a stepping stone for the next one. Along the way, I met just some, my heroes, remarkable guitar players, Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and Blackmore and Townsend and Stevie Winwood and just, um, I was lucky, man. It was, a, it was a great time to actually come up as a journalist. Uh, because music magazines were also in a nascent um, period and guitar player was just starting and um, you had Crawdaddy, and, uh, Musician, and just, just a ton of amazing magazines, which were all, which are all but uh, extinct now. There's still some around. It's pretty much online stuff and that kind of thing. So yeah. Steve, I always like to write writers, ask writers this question. Were, did you grow up in a house full of readers? Were there, were you a reader as a young kid? That's a good question. When I think about it now, and I had this conversation with my brother, my parents were always reading. My dad tended to read, he read the newspaper from front to back every page. He was a very bright person every day. So he was always reading that. My mom was reading novels. My dad liked stuff like, like the James Mitchner stories, like those historical Hawaii and those kinds of things. I always loved to read. I was reading from a very young age. I can actually remember the moment when I learned how to read. And then I can also remember learning how to write. When it's, oh, you're learning the letters and all of a sudden you can write. I, I just thought that was amazing. So I don't know if you're in third or fourth grade when you learn how to read, but I remember that moment. I thought, this is amazing. So I was always reading. I read a lot. John Steinbeck was my favorite writer. But yeah, I, I was reading a lot, junior high and high school and Ray Bradbury and yeah, man, all the did, time. Did you know you wanted to be a writer or did you want to be a rock star? Yeah, I wanted to be a rock star. Yeah, exactly. I knew that's probably a little far to stretch. So I really thought that I could be a guitar player in a rock and roll band and be a songwriter. That's really, I really loved writing songs. And when we talk about my, the journalism thing, I always saw writing, my writing as a journalist, I always saw it as an extension of lyric writing. Now, the two things are completely different with a lyric in your writing words that need to fit into a, a special a, a meter and, and a rhythm and a, and a time frame and typically they rhyme but there's a flow with a great lyric and I always try to do that in my journalism but yeah I was reading a lot I love to read I, I still read a ton of stuff today I always have at least two or three books going definitely yeah. Was there a relative that played the guitar or what led you to play the guitar? I guess the answer most people give gives give is I thought it would make uh, girls more interested in me. Is that a portion of that? A big portion of that is really true. I had some buddies, not really relatives, but buddies in in junior high and even before junior high that were playing, and yeah. I was always enamored with it. I just always thought, my God, that's so amazing! How do you do that? How do you play those strings? Do that? So I was always fascinated by it. And then when I finally picked it up, I realized it really does require a lot of work. And But yeah, from the moment I picked it up, I thought, wow, I, I would love to be able to do this for a living. I just love the idea of it. And writing songs based on guitar, I thought that was pretty amazing as well. I, um, I remember Brad Paisley, the country music artist, yeah. was talking about that, guys, you don't get girls by playing Guitar Hero. 
you get girls by playing guitar. Yeah. Uh, And I thought that was always a great line. I also love the fact that in a couple of interviews, Jason Isbell talked about, I, I, I never had to push to practice. I just wanted to play the guitar. I didn't think of it as practicing. I just yeah. thought of it as I was just playing the guitar, which I love to yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's very true. One of the things I loved, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit more, you, you mentioned the book, you didn't want to be just a writer. You didn't want to be just a music writer. You wanted to be a rock guitar writer. Yeah. yeah. Talk about a specific, let me get down to the nitty gritty of this is my subject I want to cover. Share me a little bit about that. I loved that. That's cool, man. Very early on, I realized that though I, I, I call myself a music journalist, I, I was not a journalist in the sense that every other writer I hung out with or knew I thought they were journalists. They were writing for yes. daily newspapers or weekly newspapers. They all went to journalism school and they understood what the lead paragraph had to be. They always couched the music or whoever they were writing about in, in a cultural context. I was really bad at that. I didn't get that. I look at writers like Chuck Klosterman, who I love. In fact, who wanted a copy of my book. I reached out and he wrote back. And anyway, I sent him a book. That's very exciting for me. Or Barney Hoskins, these guys who write about the Eagles, but it's in the context of what was happening musically and their cultural impact. I didn't get that. I was not wired that way. However, I could sit down and talk guitars with any of those guys. And I could tell you why they were playing the strats. And not that I was a technical guy. I wasn't a nerd guy. I just knew how to talk to guitar players. And that was always my first love. I wanted to be a guitar player. I was reading issues of guitar player before I started writing for them. And I loved reading stories about guitar players. So I knew that I was never going to be that kind of that panoramic rock music journalist. But as a rock guitar writer, that I could do. I, I thought I had a pretty unique place in as much as I did play guitar. I was never a great guitar player. I was a good guitar player, but I knew how to talk to these guys. And maybe more importantly, I knew how to listen. And yeah, when I think about these bands that I loved, I loved the bands themselves, but I, I love the guitar players more. I'm Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart, that Truth record and Beck Ola are my favorite records of all time, but it was always a focus on Beck. And it was always the focus on Paige. And it was always the focus on Townsend. And always the focus on Blackmore. So, yeah. So I thought, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to be. I I think that's going to set me apart from these other journalists. It wasn't a conscious thing. It just developed into that. And then as I'm writing the Van Halen book, I'm going, yeah, man, I was a rock guitar journalist, not a rock music journalist, as it were. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I'll give you, I say this sarcastically, a softball question, but I always think it's interesting because I don't know if there is a good answer to this. How did guitar and a specific electric guitar become the driving force of rock and roll? Because there's been all this other instruments. You look at big band or jazz or this even country with all these different things, but for some reason electric guitars became in many ways the signature um, instrument of rock and roll. Do you have a theory on that? I mean, that's a great question. So you think back to the the big band days, typically we're talking pre-electric guitar. Those guys were playing maybe acoustics with pickups in them, right? So once the electric guitar comes out, now that can become a lead instrument. I don't know. Why did Chuck Berry pick up a guitar? Why did Les Paul design a guitar and not a trombone? I think that has something to do with the malleability of a guitar. You think of what it is. It's such a simple instrument. Nowhere near as complex as a trombone or a trumpet or valves and horns and twisted metal and brass. It's, a, it's two pieces of wood put together in six strings and how no two guitar players really sound alike. And how is that? It doesn't seem possible that thousands and tens of thousands of guys can play the instrument and sound different. Yeah, man, it, it, it's a hard question. Obviously there are a lot of keyboards, but keyboards have always been secondary. Yeah, um, you know, Stevie Winwood and Stevie right. Wonder. I mean, sure. obviously there's those exceptions. Drums, yeah, drums have never been the driving force behind rock. Yeah, um, on the singer, yeah, certainly the focal point, but never, you know, considered like the main driving force of rock. Yeah, yeah, man, electric guitar. One of the things I think is I found cool is in Bruce's autobiography and little Steven, and I talked to my brother-in-law who was in, he was a stereotypical teenage in the 60s, starting his own band, playing local gigs. And you would stare at the guitar player at where he's, how he's strumming and what chords he's making to try to learn. And Bruce would talk about that when they go to gigs, they would be staring at that lead guitar player trying to pick out and then go home and try to reproduce it. I just had a young musician on the podcast and a guy named Jake Thistle, really up and coming. He's in his 20s, has been playing on YouTube probably since he was 15 or 16. And he said... Yes, I did that with Bruce, but I think Bruce would have liked the idea that I was able to stop the video on YouTube, rewind it a little bit, watch again versus they were trying to watch Ed Sullivan live trying to, okay, let me pick it up. Let me pick it up. So it is, but it is the signature electric guitar. You think rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I was really touched by your book, and I'm going to get to some specifics, but I'll tell you, I was a high school senior, and I was best friends with a guy who's now passed, but his name was Jeff, and we just did everything together. We were just best friends. We did everything, and after we graduated high school, for some reason, he just stopped 
returning my phone calls, mm. stopped hanging out with me. If we saw each other, he was polite, but there just was, and I never knew why. What did I do to mess him up? What did I do to do? And it just this mystery, and I'm now 64. And you would think I wouldn't care, but reading your book brought back that, what what did I do? How did I lose a friend? For those of you who rev- haven't read the book, you're probably going, why the hell are you telling this story, Jesse? Yeah. But Steve is smiling at me because he understands why. Let's start, for the people, you had a unique experience of I when I have a fan on, I go, when did you first discover Bruce Springsteen and what about his music spoke to you? You have a question when you discovered Eddie Van Halen and you also talked about what about it spoke to you. So you want to share that story? So it's uh, 1977 and I'm at the Whiskey to see Cheap Trick record a live record. I'm there with my brother and the girl who books the whiskey, Michelle Meyer, who's a friend of mine, taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, there's somebody you, you need to meet. Oh, okay. M- Michelle was, I call her Yenta. Michelle was connected to everything in Hollywood. She knew the good bands. She knew the great bands. She knew the bad bands. She knew I was writing for guitar magazines. She knew I had to meet this guy. So we go upstairs at the whiskey and there's a guy standing in the corner and he's smoking and he would always be smoking. And we walk over and I'm pretty certain I recognized him. Now you have to understand this is 77, right? So there are no magazine articles out on Van Halen. There are no like big spreads on him. Van Halen's first record was still about eight months away, February 78. There was flyers, you could see a flyer. I had never seen Van Halen play when I met Edward. I'd certainly heard of Van Halen, but I don't think I'd ever really seen a picture of him, but I think I recognize him. So she walks me over and she says, Eddie Van Halen, Steve Rosen, Eddie Van Halen, Godhead. And Michelle using the word Godhead was her description of the greatest of the great. You were God on the mountaintop if she called you Godhead. And we began talking, man, and and 45 minutes goes by. And it was like I described it as a conversation that, that we had begun sometime previously. And we were like just like continuing the conversation, like you knew this person, one of those conversations where there's no lulls and there are no wrong questions and you just felt so comfortable and it was just unbelievable. And at the end of the conversation, he gives me his phone number. And for the next 26 years, off and on, I remained friends with this guy, Edward Van Halen. And it, it was astonishing. It was remarkable. And it was only when I received the Van Halen record all those months later, and I put the record on and listened to it, Though I must say the first time I put it on and listened to it, I didn't think it was very good. I thought, ah, it's Deep Purple, man. I heard Richie Blackmore do this back on a Machine Head record. But then I listened again the next day and was cognizant of the fact. It was like, oh, my God, this is what everybody's going insane over. This is next level shit. This is the rewriting of electric guitar. And yeah, that's when I realized, oh, my God, that's that guy that I met. He gave me his phone number. He wants to hang out. Or it, it, it was this heightened awareness every day being around him or just thinking about that. My God, this guy is like becoming my friend. It was unbelievable. And honestly, those years, man, I think about it now. They just flew by. And it was it was difficult trying to recall some of those memories. Because again, we're going back to 77, 78. And it's a lot of years ago. I put my coffee cup down and I remember, I forget where it is five minutes later, but it was amazing. He was an extraordinary person, notwithstanding the musical thing. But I did come to understand, if not all the answers, a lot more of why there's Edward Van Halen and then a ton of other incredibly gifted guitar players. 
but only one Van Halen, maybe one Jimi Hendrix. We're talking about a one in a million diamond that happens. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I, I was lucky and maybe I was in the right place. And I don't know about destiny. I, I could have not gone to the whiskey that night. So yeah, a lot of things I think came together for that to happen. Yeah, and I think we all know those friendships where I still have friends like that that I don't see for six years. And then when we are in the room together, it's we had just seen each other last weekend. We yeah. pick up immediately where we're going. Yeah. Um, so why at this point did you decide you wanted to write a book about him and why did you decide to make it instead of a strict biography a journey of y'all's friendship so 2003 is the last time i speak with him off and on during the years i'm sorry let me backtrack just quickly so sure. back in back in 1985 i had asked edward Writers are going to come to you to write your life story. I, I want to be the one to write that book. And he said yes. And he gave me that permission. And we signed a couple simple contracts. And I, I put little scans of those in the book. So in 1985, I, I started working on a book that I thought would come out 1988. I'd work on it a couple of years, 1989. Long story short, that book never comes out. Obviously. Our friendship continues on. 2003, I, I speak to him one final time. And the years kind of start going by. And I would think about that book from time to time. I'll be honest, I, I think for a while after the relationship ended, I was pretty angry. And I don't want to give like the ending of the book away if you haven't read it. But I was mad. I was angry. And so I thought, write a book about him? I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to write a book. But the years go by, the years pass. Sometime, I don't know, maybe like 2018, 2019, I have some friends who knew that I had befriended Edward, that I'd been friends with him and knew that I'd interviewed him. Hey man, why don't you write a book? Maybe there's a book there. And so I thought about it a little bit and then it really just snuck up on me. I just, I didn't sit down and say, I'm going to start my book today on, Ed, on Edward Van Halen. I'll, I'll try to be quick on this one. I had a cat whose name was Arpeggio. Arpeggio used to wake me up at ungodly hours in the middle of the night, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, wanted to be fed. So I'd wake up, walk down the stairs to my little kitchen, my little place in the Hollywood Hills, and I'd feed him his food, and then I'd try to go back to sleep, and I'd toss and turn him because now I was up. So one time after feeding him, i just walk into my little computer room office, and sit down and just start typing. And I probably had a vague idea that Edward was on my mind. And I just start typing. And I had the first little ideas for what would become the intro of the book. And I'm looking at it. I'm going, this is okay. This is pretty good. And so each night when the cat would wake me up, I'd literally walk in there and end up writing until the sun would come up, three or four hours. And it just started taking shape. And I actually began the book on August 24th, which was my birthday, or that was the first day I started writing. And maybe that was a conscious thing, I don't know. So what is it, Ed passed October 6th? So we're talking five weeks, six weeks after I begin the book, Edward passes away. Not one who is superstitious or believes in omens or this and that, my thought is, what do I do? Do I continue writing the book? Do I put the book away? By then I had written, I don't know, maybe a couple chapters and it felt really good. And I just decided to go forward. So I keep writing and 14 months later, I, I have the book done. And as weird as it sounds, I look back on the book now and I go, how did I ever write that? And I'm not saying that because I think it's a brilliant book. I think it's a really good book. I thought I did a really good job, but it's just that it was so expansive and massive. And if you had told me, yeah, man, you're going to have to write 
600 pages about Edwards. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to recall all of those memories. And how do I write about him sitting in my front room playing his guitar? I can't remember those things. Thank goodness I had a lot of these interviews on tape and other conversations so I could listen to something and go, oh, yeah. I went over to 5150 that day and Edward was, you know, not in a good mood. And we talked about this and that would trigger a time period. It just took a lot of connecting tissue and trying to recall things chronologically. And yeah, so a a long answer to a a short question, Jesse, it it just creeped up on me. And at a point in time, I I didn't know if I would ever finish. I'm like 150,000 words in which is about the length of most music bios. They're typically about 150, 175,000. And I was nowhere near halfway done. And I thought, fuck it. I'm just going to keep writing. I'm going to write. I'm going to write. And it'll be what it is. And if nobody wants to read it, if nobody wants to publish it, fine. Of course, I, I wanted people to read it. I wanted to see it published. I wasn't writing it for my own edification. I wanted it to be out in the world. But I did just forge ahead, pig-headed, fashion in terms of just kind of putting everything in there I wanted. Spending two pages on him smoking a cigarette or watching him change a guitar string or things that other books wouldn't do or having these little sections, which I call the note sections, where I'm actually critiquing this guy, Steve Rosen, who's writing this book. So this note, this guy in this note section really knows everything that's going on. And I look at myself, what I just written and say, That's horrific. Why would you write that? That's dumb. Don't say that to Edward. Why would you ask that question? So I was being my own critic. And at at the end of the day, I thought that was pretty interesting. I'd never seen that done. And again, it wasn't a conscious thing. It just grew. I'm pretty, I'm very self-aware, very self-conscious of things I write on that level. And and I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. So it's just, I'm going to write whatever I want. It's my book. And I hope you guys like it. Jesse, I can't hear you. Okay, there we go. I accidentally hit mute. All right, yeah, yeah, we are talking to Steve Rosen, writer of Tone Chaser. I will include a link where you can get the book. You mentioned, and I was going to compliment you on, this is a very fun format that you include, let's say, a conversation or an interview you had with Edward, say, 1979. And you have that in the format, but then before and after you put it in context, as you said, that all-knowing narrator. Okay, they were there. I do think it's interesting you brought up very early that you would never see him not smoking. That was just something. And you brought up the fact that you are not a smoker and not a fan of smoking. And you had to have the very awkward decision. Do I tell this guy not to smoke in my house? And I will, I will not give this away. But Bruce Springsteen talks about when he first got money, truly money, where after Born in the USA hit and he's got money, he wanted a guitar in every part of the house so that at any moment he could pick up a guitar and play with it. And you have a debate on what do I do? And it it ends up being a very funny story that Edward – owns the room wherever he's in and if there is a instrument it becomes his instrument (laughs) do not pass go do not collect two hundred dollars that is just the way it is and i love that story that's cool yeah that's great yeah i'm sorry go ahead no go ahead please yeah so i'm sorry i just wanted to um um touch back on on your previous question about me writing a book as a, a uh my journey and not a biography And all of those elements about a note and this and that, you would never have those in a a biography. And and then it goes back to me saying earlier, 
those kinds of books were going to be written by somebody else. Brad Gillis's book and Paul Brannigan's book. Those are excellent books. And again, they're able to more context-wise put all of that in context. Those are much more biographies than, than my book is. And I wouldn't call mine a memoir, but, but yeah, it, it, it is a journey. And, and yes, it is, yeah, those, me commenting on myself and yeah, Ed doing those things and, and saying those things, those wouldn't show up in biographies. They just, they probably just wouldn't be worth mentioning. They're certainly not as important as Edward releasing the third record and using the bumblebee or the crime. They just, they had no place. But for me, I can explode that idea out and talk about him taking the knob off my guitar and smoking the cigarette and all of those things. And yeah, so yeah, all that anecdotal stuff, all those little pieces become much bigger. And in my mind, they express so much about who he was. Yes, it's music, of course. But like I said, that was going to be written about by other people. And I had touched on that in my interviews back in the 80s. Those Guitar World interviews, I talked to him about the guitars and this and that. And of course, that's fascinating. But somebody said to me, you really humanized Edward. That's really what I wanted to do. So Jesse, you love that story about him coming in the room and taking my Strat and pulling. I love that story too. And I remembered it because it's on the tape. Hey, can I take the knob off? And me saying, does it come off? It's like me asking you, do headphones go on your head? It's such a stupid thing to ask. Yeah. He says, well, I think so. Like he knows so. But he doesn't say, what a dumb question, you know, and all of those little bits, if you can read between the lines, it tells you everything you wanted to know that he loves guitar more than anything. And he was pretty patient and his humility. And so at least that's how I see it. And I'm hoping that's how other people have seen it. Yeah. And I agree your thought about personifying him, making him human. You get to see some of the warts. You get to see some of the kindness. None of us are, none of us are, want to be judged by our best moments or our worst moments, but we're all human. And you paint a picture of someone you were friends with and that you got to know in a, in a certain level. And it is a, it, it's interesting to see because I think back, you will hear Penn Gillette in his podcast talk about there was a time where him and Lou Reed were pretty close. Hmm. And then they drifted apart. But for a while, they were, and Lou Reed was your, his friend, not quote unquote Lou Reed. And you say this was your friend, Edward Van Halen, not. Eddie Van Halen, Guitar God. Dude, when you watched them perform live, were you able to switch that and as a fan, enjoy the music? And talk to me a little bit about that because I would have such personal pride of seeing someone I care about out there just doing something as good as or maybe better than very few people have ever done. That's a really good question. And honestly, and I write about in the book, I I saw Van Halen perform a fair amount of times. I'm sure I know that there are people who read the book that have seen them yeah. 50 times. I probably saw yeah. Van Halen, I don't know, man, a dozen times, 15 times. Yeah. And I write about the book, and I know this is strange, and I hate to say it. It's hard to remember those performances. And maybe it's for that very reason that, you know, yeah, I'm there and I'm watching this guy that two days before I'd been hanging out with and maybe part of my brain was hard. It was hard to make that adjustment, but I do certainly remember shows thinking, my God, yeah, this is that guy who I was hanging out with um, two days ago. And I suppose I wanted to be honest. I, I wanted everybody around me to know. I wanted to go scream it on the mountaintops. Hey, man. That's Eddie Van Halen. He's my buddy. And he yeah. comes over to my house and fills my house up with cigarette smoke. I wanted to brag about it. I'll be honest with you. In a strange way, I suppose when you're out there watching the show and all those other people are out there, 
Ed, Edward, Edward is a part of each of them. So Edward is sharing himself with all of them. When we're hanging out, and I'm not trying to go deep here, but it's like, it's just Edward and me. And there were really moments when I would watch him just playing the electric acoustically and playing me some of the riffs or just doing stuff. It's that's when I had to pinch myself and go, holy fuck, this guy, this is Edward Van Halen and he is an astonishing guitar player. It was seeing it up close like that and realizing how amazing he was. So yeah, so I think it was maybe the opposite, but certainly I would see them play live and, and realize, my God, he is the biggest guitar player in the world. They are the biggest band in the world or one of them. And yeah, it's like pride of ownership. Not that I owned Edward Van Halen, but in my tiny way, I was part of his day and he would go on to headline at the forum and I'd go home and write about him headlining the forum so I could feel a tiny part of that. And it was pretty unbelievable, man. It was pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I, I haven't had too many experiences that way a few years ago longer than that now because it was when Obama was running against McCain so that's been a lot of years ago but I was at a comic book convention of all things right and my buddy got us invited to a dinner and it was literally a who's who of comic book creators people Chris Claremont who and all these Mark Evanier and all these writers that I'm drawing a blank on now, but, and we were at dinner and, and we were talking to him and I'm like, Oh my goodness, I'm talking to the guy who created X character and I can't pinch me. I can't believe I'm here. The other thing we did laugh about is they were really talking about politics. And my buddy Tom's, forget that. I want to know who should be in the Justice League to, to, to talk nerdy. <laughs> yeah, I and to see that up close and personal, I can imagine he just, yeah, because one of the things in the book He's talking about one of the songs, and you mentioned this multiple times. He's, oh, yeah, I just came up with a riff, and he starts playing the riff, and that's yeah. what led to the song. And you're like, well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I often, a quote that's originally a, a given to Leonardo da Vinci, that art's never finished, it's only abandoned. Are there things in the book you go, yeah, I might have rechanged something or did it come out pretty close to what you wanted? So do you mean, are there parts that I wish I could have changed or, or, yeah, or like to? when you wrote the book, is there looking back now that when you look back at it, you've had it a little bit, are you, uh, is there anything you say, Ooh, I wish I had done a little bit different in the book? Um, I don't, I really don't think so. Um, I thought long and hard about some of those passages and some of the things I do write about. But I wrote from the beginning, it, if I wasn't going to be as honest as I possibly could with the reader, with myself, with Edward, with what I experienced, then why write the book? If I'm going to do that, then just I'll just toss in all my interviews and do an interview book. But I did think about some of those moments. And I thought at the end of the day, I, they, they have to be in there. I think that they reveal something about Edward. If you say that Da Vinci quote, it, it's never finished. There's certainly, there's certainly so much more I wish I could have done back when, back in the 85, 86, when I was working on that book. The problem was I wanted Edward to sit down and not to do more guitar talk because I'd had those interviews, but Ed, I need you to talk down, sit down and really, I really want to know what the relationship is like with you and Alex. And did you have other relatives um, back in Europe? And what were you like in school when you were six years old? And did your parents fight? And why do you think you started drinking when you were 13? And why did you start smoking? And that that's my biggest regret. And I write about it in the book. It was crucial when I was going to write the book back in 85. I had to talk to his parents. I thought that would have been so amazing, especially with Edward sitting there. And there's one yeah. little chapter where 
I said, Ed, can we talk to your mom? And he said, yeah. And, and, and he says, I want to be there. And I said, of course I want you there. It was almost as if I was going to talk to his mom without him there. And that tells you so much about the guy. At least it does to me. And then I was going to talk to his dad. And, and Ed was going to set it up. And I pushed him. And I say, Ed, and I'll set it up. And, and then his dad passes away. And he says, oh, did you ever talk to my dad? Um, and I was mad about that. I yeah. thought, no, Ed, you never set it up. And so, yeah, those obviously, both the parents are gone. Th those stories are gone forever. Alex is probably the only one who really knows any of those stories. But would I change anything? No, I don't, I don't think I would. I would add, I would add to it, but. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I met, you read, there was, he talked about teaching his son his first few chords and then him not practicing, right? There, I thought that was yeah. a funny story that, yeah. you know, and I always think that's how do you, you try to have your child find their own way without pushing to do that. And it does appear that's where he's found. I hope that he gets a chance to read it because I think this is a side of his father he may not have seen as much. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I've never met Wolf. Yeah. I've never spoken to him. I, I, I think he's incredibly gifted. He certainly has the Van Halen blood flowing through him. And yeah. yes, that little guitar story says a lot. And then one of my last conversations with Ed, Ed talking about learning, teaching Wolf to play drums in four minutes, which I believe, and plays from this little bit of this guy playing drums and it's Wolf and he sounds like John Bonham. I think that Wolf has probably heard about the book. Yeah. He seems pretty up on the social media thing. And I know a lot of people take shots at him, which must just feel horrendous. That's horrible. He's probably heard about the book. Has he read it? I don't know. I guess what I think about is there's this Steve Rosen guy and I've seen his book and I've looked through it. And even if he doesn't, he didn't like the book. He, he says, okay. But the fact that, yeah, this Steve Rosen guy, he was friends. He knew my dad for 26 years and he knew him back in 1977 before they got signed and before my dad got big. You know, I wonder what he could tell me. Like you're talking about Jesse and I, I, I think I could. I think I could reveal some things to him that I'm sure he's experienced, but obviously I knew his dad before he did. And I could, I would love to have that conversation with him. And if he doesn't like the book, there's nothing I can do about that. I can only say I wrote the most honest book I could. The last thing I would ever want to do is hurt anybody or yeah. embarrass anybody. Had Wolf reached out to me the day before I started writing the book and said, please don't write the book. I don't know if I would have stopped writing the book, but I would have thought really long and hard about yeah. writing the book. By then, I think I had it in me. What I'm trying to say is I, I would love to have had some connection with them before starting the book. Or I write the story about Val, how that ended up, which was to this day, I don't know what that was about. And I don't want to give it away if you haven't right. read it. Alex has that little story about, I, I, I mentioned one thing that he had said about Bon Jovi and said, Al hates you. Does Al still carry that grudge? I don't know. Yeah. The reason I asked that is there is a true story that I had a couple of guys on the podcast. One of them picked up the phone and called his brother and said, oh my God, Bruce is, Bruce Springsteen is talking about our dad. And in for the song, The Wall, Bruce and The Thing had talked about a, a guitarist, a local Jersey musician that had gone to Vietnam and had died in Vietnam. And, and he was a big influence on Bruce. So he ended up meeting the two sons and they went to Bruce on Broadway and he got to meet them afterwards. And they were able to tell stories. He was able to tell them stories that they never heard about their dad, right? Because both of them were infants when their father died in Vietnam. And so he was able to say he was this amazing guitar player. He was amazing and everything. So I agree. 
that not out of an ego, but just, I know a side of your father that your mother doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Your uncle probably knows a lot of it, but if, if you wanted to share, I would be glad to tell you about my friend, your father. Yeah, no, that's it. That's it in a nutshell. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, th- I think he would get something out of it. I think you know, so. even if he hate, even if he hated the book, Right. hated me for writing it i think he could recognize that i did love his dad and that yeah yeah, yeah i when the conversation ended he could walk away and go yeah i didn't know that about my dad who knows maybe yeah. one day maybe i will think so steve any final thoughts before i let you go i'm just extraordinarily pleased and happy with the reception the book has received. So you sit in a room and for 14 months, which for me is an extraordinarily long time to write a book. I mentioned some other books I'd written previously. I think the longest one, the longest any of those ever took was like three months, four months. I really did. I spent a lot of time editing and rewriting and just trying to make every word great. And I really wanted it to read, as I mentioned before, like one long song lyric. I I really wanted that. And at the end of the day, you sit there and you've written this thing. And before you send it out into the world, it's the best book ever written, right? It's the best song ever written until somebody hears it. And the reality can be something quite different. So I didn't know. I didn't know how people were going to react to some of those very honest moments. I thought, this is Van Halen. This is our hero. How can you say those things? We hate you. We hate your book. I didn't know. I self-published the book. And I want to say this because no publisher was interested and no agent would even return a phone call. And I'm going to say this, and I hope I can say this, fuck you to all of you. But anyway, so the book goes out there. I have it printed. It goes out there. And the first people write back to me and the responses, it was just amazing. They understood what I was trying to do and was trying to present this other side of Edward Van Halen. And no, it wasn't guitar nerd talk. And it was revealing. And there were some dark moments in there. And at the end of the day, they walk away and go, yeah, we know something about Edward we didn't know before. So that just feels unbelievable. It's now in the second printing. And that's an achievement I I don't think I ever anticipated. So I'm just really happy about it. I'm so pleased with it. Yeah, I think you should be. I think this is it. It would be easy to try to do a tell-all book or a hatchet job or a glowing, this is the greatest guy ever. I think you wrote a book that gives the human side of someone that many people, I remember a few years ago on a sports station, they interviewed Joe Montana. And they talked about after he hung up, God, what a great guy. And he, if he's not the greatest quarterback of all time, he's in the discussion, right? So if he isn't the greatest guitar player of all times, Edward Van Halen is in the discussion, right? Absolutely right. Absolutely. to, To show that humanity is a true joy and i am thrilled that we got to spend time together once again the book is called tone chaser understanding edward my 26 year old journey with edward van halen by steve rosen it is available on amazon and is where else is there anywhere else they should go there is you can also find it on reverb ebay and etsy Okay. If anybody ever goes out to Etsy and you can find it on my, my website as well, tonechaserbook.com, one word. All right. Very nice. All yeah. right. So what I got to do is now I got to go buy your Springsteen book, read it, and then have <laughs> you on to talk Bruce. All right. Okay. Is that a deal? Uh, it, it is. I, I need to put in one caveat. Jesse. Yes. I never interviewed Bruce. That's okay. So there was a couple of books I wrote for uh, this company. I can't remember what they were called. They wanted me to do a Prince book and a Bruce yeah. book. I never interviewed either of them. Okay. And trying to get an interview with either of those guys at that time was impossible. I did interview some of the musicians that played on Bruce's records. I think his engineer, but it's a pretty 
it's a pretty good book for what it was. Obviously, okay. it doesn't go past. I think it came out in 95, but okay. yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. looking forward to it. That sounds okay, good. Cool. Excellent. All right. So listeners, if you're asking, waiting for me to ask the Mary question, Steve's going to take a pass. But when I have him on the Bruce show, when I'm on again, then I'm going to ask him the Mary question. Guys, I just really, I, I recommend the book, whether you're in a Van Halen fan or not. I think this is a fascinating, intimate look at a significant person in modern rock and roll history. And I think you've done a great job of capturing the humanity of the man and and also sharing a lot of yourself, Steve. And I hope it was healing for you and cathartic in writing it. I appreciate those unbelievably glowing words, Jesse. When I think about it now, I it, it was. As I'm writing it, I, I, I don't think, you, you don't think about it in the moment. You think about, fuck, how do I get through the next chapter? I don't mean to be glib about it, but yeah, man, when I look, if I had not written a book, that book, I think I would have really, I would have felt like I failed myself. I would have been disappointed in myself. And I'm not trying to be spiritual, but I think I would have failed Edward. I, I think, what if Ed had been around when the book had gotten finished? What would he have thought? And as I write in the book, I don't think Ed ever read anything I ever wrote. Yeah. And I doubt he would have written, he would have read this book, but I hoped he would have thought that, yeah, Steve, whatever Steve writes, it's honest and it's probably okay. In my head, I, I'm hoping that's what he would have said. But yes, at the end of the day, like I said before, having written it, it feels so good. Had I not written it, I really believe there would have been this, yeah, this empty thing in me. One of the things I was struck through, and then I promise I'm going to let you go, is a couple of times you go into what if. What if this had happened? What if I had followed him and he had waved me over? What if he had picked up the phone and called or what if I had picked up the phone and called him and closure is often used almost as a cliche. Yeah. But this book felt that you were, my relationship was what it was and I'm going to embrace the joy that I had having him in my life and focus on that. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Thank you. And I suppose as much as anything cathartic. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. I, I was able to, by writing about it in such detail, I was able to, yeah, define it and put a little cage around it and go, yeah, that's what it is. And that's what it was. That's what it became. It wasn't all happy days. It wasn't all happiness. But yes, it, it was. I was able to look at the relationship as a whole and smile about it. And yeah, be happy. I, I did write the book and just consider myself the luckiest freaking person on the planet for having that experience. That sounds great. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for spending time with me. Thank you for the book. I loved it. Listeners, go check out the book. Once again, Tone Chaser by Stephen Rosen. And everyone, please be kind, be safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at setlustingbruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Gags. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture.
You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Fed Listening Bruce. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.